Welcome to the IFI podcast from the Irish Film Institute. I'm Stephen Boylan, and this is the first in a short season of IFI podcasts we're making available during the current COVID-19 outbreak. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can contact us on Facebook and Instagram at Irish Film Institute or on Twitter at IFI underscore dub. In this episode, we'll revisit some recent cinematic gems you may have missed at the IFI that you can now catch at home on streaming services. Joining us with our recommendations are David O'Mahony and Kevin Coyne from the IFI Cinema Programming Team. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello, Stephen. Nice to be here. David, I'll come to you first. Obviously, you watch a lot of films in the course of your job, but I'm interested as to whether your own viewing habits have changed since lockdown. Yeah, they have. Um, normally for our job, we are looking, we're looking ahead. We're looking at you know, new releases coming out in the next couple of weeks or months, and you know, we're programming seasons and festivals, retrospectives, but they're, you know, we're always looking ahead the next couple of months, indeed the next year almost. We program so long in advance at the IFI. So with all of that now on hiatus, um, I've taken this opportunity to, to kind of delve back a little bit and to try to fill some gaps in my own education you know there's always those films or those directors whose work you you um, never had the opportunity to to explore properly so I have tried my best where possible to to do some of that and uh, yeah it's been it's been quite rewarding and you, you never know what's um, you know what could ultimately shake loose and uh, well watch film of the weekend uh, called The Servant by Joseph Losey directed by Harold or, as I say directed by Joseph Losey written by Harold Pinter Dirk Bogard, James Fox, which I thought was terrific. It had always been one of those big seminal films that I somehow fell between the cracks. We all have them. Mm-hmm. And it really, it really kind of amazed me how, how it stood the test of time, how it stood up, and also how relevant it was. Certainly, in, you know, everyone's seen Parasite recently, and just how you could really see the, some of the resonances from Parasite in that film. Also, this kind of tale of societal climbing and clash of, of different cultures. Uh, yeah, it was great. So, and I uh, have to thank the movie platform for that one, which will probably be coming to at some point in this discussion. Uh, absolutely indeed. And Kevin, how about yourself? Anything that you've, you've, you've caught up on that you meant to watch many moons ago? Um, well, nothing as disciplined as David. It's, I've been much more scattershot in my approach. It's gone from comfort viewing to random things on some of the streaming platforms. So it, it's, it's been a lot more haphazard than that, to be honest. I kind of haven't the discipline at the moment to maybe uh, be as organized as David about it, unfortunately. But um, I've been enjoying a lot of the stuff I'm watching. I had a great binge of classic 50s sci-fi B-movies, which was a bit of fun while this was on. At the same time, working my way through, you know, a few things that maybe are not as demanding as something like The Serpent, early Marlon Brando stuff, like Mm -hmm. The Wild One, which I'd never seen, and things like that. And then going back to, you know, again, comfort viewing of just films I could watch over and over again that are just kind of help take me out of the situation we're in. The only one that I've kind of caught up on recently is The Philadelphia Story, which I'd never seen. Um, I know James Stewart won the Oscar for it, but Catherine Hepburn really is amazing in that film. She really is terrific. She Mm -hmm. has that great moment where she turns to him, um, she makes some comment about something being a relic and then turns to him without breaking stride and asks him how old he is. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Brilliant. Brilliant. Superb. Um, So as I mentioned, um, in this episode, we're going to dig back through some recent releases uh, shown at the iFi. And David, your first choice is a very intriguing beast, uh, which opened uh, last year's iFi Documentary Festival. Yeah, that's right. Uh, The Amazing Jonathan Documentary, um, which did indeed open DocFest last year and went on to a very limited release after that. And just to say the films that I've chosen for this, I really tried to focus on films that 
opened at the IFI, well, in all but one case, it's opened at the IFI, but kind of came and went, films that we, we thought might get more attraction, that were certainly deserving of more attention. And this is, this is definitely a case in point. Certainly when people are you know, experiencing or enjoying long-form documentaries on Netflix and other streaming channels, I think this is a perfect feature doc to consume during this time. It's uh, essentially a documentary about the titular Jonathan, uh, who was a performer of summer noun uh, kind of a celebrity magician of summer noun in the 90s and he was given three years to live in around 2014-15 subsequently film starts three years later he's not dead and he decides to go back on the road for a couple of like last um last shows documentary maker benjamin berman catches up with him essentially just to document this last hurrah of the amazing jonathan but that turns into a absolutely fascinating deep dive into what it actually is to make a documentary and how far a filmmaker will go in pursuit of their subject as the amazing Jonathan turns out to be an incredibly elusive and slippery customer and to say that all is not what it seems would be something of an understatement um, and it really would it's an overworked phrase but it really wouldn't it, it, it would not do listeners any service to tell you more than that but Jonathan drops repeated bombshells to Benjamin Berman through the filming of the documentary that forces him to kind of engage in some um, pretty extraordinary activity just to keep his keep his subject interested. And it's fascinating kind of unpacking and unpicking of of the whole documentary form in a very fun and playful and self-reflexive way. So yeah, it kind of fell through the cracks, and I certainly think people will will get something from it on uh, streaming. Do I detect a, a little bit of a Louis Theroux vibe off it? Very much so, yeah, very, very much so. But um, as I say, Berman begins his documentary in one direction and winds up in an entirely different direction. Essentially, he's, his subject becomes kind of the, the, the person driving, driving the, uh, the ship. It's, it's a fascinating exploration of just a documentary craft um, that somehow came and went. So it sounds like a kind of a, a cautionary tale for kind of prospective documentary filmmakers. Uh, you could read it as that, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, indeed. Um, we have a very international list, but I do want to stay in the States for your first pick, Kevin, which is Support the Girls. This has got a, a small release last year, but again, a bit of a gem. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it, it's just a lovely, a lovely small, simple film. It, it's not, you know, got a huge amount of... Um, there's no explosions, there's nothing. It's set around basically a day in a sports bar and following the troubles encountered by the bar manager played by Regina Hall. And it's, it's just a really charming film that, that for some reason got no traction. The reviews were all great, but unfortunately it didn't find an audience. And it, it would just be nice kind of at the time we're in. I think it's the kind of thing that people would really respond to and get a lot of enjoyment out of it at the minute. It's just... And, uh, you know, a, a collection of very likable characters doing their best to get through the day. Uh, there's a fantastic cast. Um, is it very much an ensemble piece or is there kind of a lead character in it? Well, Regina Hall is the, the kind of focus and I think she's, she's in practically every scene anyway. But the writer-director, Andrew Pajalski, who's done films we've shown in the past like Results or Funny Ha Ha, he has a, a really great way of writing. All the characters are really well sketched. Even if they don't get that much screen time, they seem to be very well defined and you kind of, you invest in them. And you really kind of, by the end of the film, you really care about this group of women who are helping each other through a bad day. And you really hope that they just get out the other side of it and that life gets a bit easier for them. I noticed on the cast list that um, Hayley Lou Richardson is in the film and I recently watched Columbus and she is terrific uh, in Columbus. And she's, she's great in this as well, I presume. 
Yeah, and actually Columbus is another film I could have chosen for this. That was a, a great film that unfortunately, again, maybe didn't, wasn't noticed as much as it should have been. But yeah, she's a, a very promising actress and someone like James LaGrosse who's in it, who's a familiar face from so many things. But again, turns up in a couple of scenes, brilliantly written little role, brilliantly performed. I mean, the film just has a, a, a lot of strengths to it. And um, I think it's one that people would, again, if they, you know, are sitting at home by any chance, um, they would really enjoy maybe if they gave it a chance. Talk to me about The Nightingale from director Jennifer Kent, who made The Babadook, the same director, but two very different films. Um, well, The Babadook we'd had success with both in Horathon and I think we gave it a run as well. And it was a very impressive kind of debut for Jennifer Kent. And there was a lot of interest in what she'd do next. And The Nightingale, which had Ashling Franciosi, the Irish actress in the lead, it's not a horror, but it's, it's very far from Sport the Girls in, in following uh, another kind of strong female character. She's an Irish immigrant in Australia in the 1800s with a husband and a small child. The British soldiers basically cause her to lose her family and she sets out for revenge. It, it is essentially a revenge thriller, but there's an awful lot of material in there about um, colonialism and the consequences of colonialism and its effects on indigenous peoples, whether in this case it's the Aborigines or, you know, closer to home, you can draw parallels with the Irish experience under um, colonial rule. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's a much tougher film, certainly. Um, mm -hmm. It's not as easy a watch. But again, it, it's just really strong. And Ashley Franciosi is, is really exceptional in the lead role. So, you know, again, yes, a very different beast, but another one that's equally worth seeing. The Nightingale premiered in Venice in 2018 to a little bit of controversy with talk of walkouts. Is that controversy earned or uh, was that just a little bit of festival hype? It's not easy to watch the first half hour, the kind of setup that sets her out on this um, search for vengeance. But it, it, yeah, I think it, it's not as bad maybe as was made out. Don't remember us having walkouts from it the way there were all these claims from festivals you know people leaving in droves that wasn't our experience as such but but that's not to say that it's not kind of tough to get past the opening section and get into the kind of the main narrative I don't know if David would agree with me on that I would Kevin certainly the the setup is necessarily intense and and tough to view but I think there was a little bit of overestimation of of, of how gruesome or how graphic or grueling it was from festivals and you know, you see this happen time and time again. It tends to to feed buzz and column inches. Uh, there's talk of multiple walkouts where maybe, you know, two people went to the loo and came back. So it's it's very difficult to to kind of, you know, put much stock in that. It's intentionally shocking and quite gruesome in the beginning, but it's all in service of character development and sets the character on that quest. So it's it makes sense within the context of the film. I don't think it's gratuitous. I don't think it's mm. gloating or lingering or, or, you know, or kind of delighting in, in the violence it depicts. And it, it is quite subtle in its own way. Yeah, so I, I think it's, I think it's uh, justifiable. I'd like to stay with female directors. We had two great sci-fi films last year. We had Claire Denis' High Life, which starred Juliette Binoche and Robert Pattinson. But we also had Pella Kegelman's Aniara, which was co-directed by Hugo Lilia. Now, for anyone who's been watching Armando Iannucci's Avenue 5, they might recognise some similarities in the plot. But this is an altogether more serious take on the story. Yeah, Aniara might be one that hits a little close to home at the minute. It's <laughs> set on a, a spaceship journeying to Mars with carrying a, a group of human colonists 
after is a mechanical accident. The ship spins off course and essentially heads off into the great unknown. And so the people on the ship, which is a fully functional kind of self-contained environment with all the amenities and luxuries one could hope for, are basically left to um, live out their lives and procreate and continue their existence aboard this one location, this confined space, despite all, you know, despite having all the luxuries available to them. And it's, it's just a really interesting concept and it's really well executed. It's impossible not to look at the film and kind of try and imagine what you would do in that situation. I mean, I suppose one of the, the, the aspects of that I found really interesting was there's people who are hired to work on the ship. I mean, if you learned that the ship was going off course, how much longer would you keep working if nobody else had to work? And I mean, there's similarities. I, I watched, um, I caught up with Passengers recently, Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence, which again, it's, just a, it's a, a very different film. You know, it's a much more kind of mainstream. But again, it's got some of those really fascinating ideas in it of, and again, it also hit very close to home at the minute of this idea of living out in this one space. And despite having everything available to you, when, if your options are still really limited, how do you adjust and how do you cope with that? I think this film is a definition of a hidden gem uh, that, that, that came and went. It's an incredibly surprising film, just how certainly towards the latter stages, um, some of the choices it makes really are very bold and very brave. And it does spin off into very kind of deeply philosophical territory. Very rich, very rewarding. Again, kind of one of those mystifying experiences that, um, you know, that uh, just didn't connect with audiences for, for whatever reason. And I'm ripe for rediscovery. There's um, ever so slightly a sci-fi element to our next choice, which is one of yours, Dave, which is uh, Baccarat, and the new film from uh, Juliano Dornelis and Clever Mendoza Fillo, who directed Aquarius um, a couple of years ago. This has another fantastic uh, performance by Sonia Braga. Yeah, does ever so slightly, I think, is even overstating. <laughs> um, I, and I also think it's, it's maybe a little bit of a red herring. Um, I'm not sure if they used the slight sci-fi hint in the trailer, but it is, it is a little bit of a red herring. The film is set a few years in the future, but I don't really think it's, um, I, you know, I don't think you could file this film under, under sci-fi in any way, shape or form. The, the titular town of Baccarat is in the northeast of Brazil, um, a tiny little one-horse town, comes under threat from uh, numerous aggressors. First of all, the, the government seems to have erased the town from digital maps and cut off the water supply and the villagers, it's a large, uh, it, it's a very kind of broadcast, um, there's not really one main character, it's a very much an ensemble piece. The villagers then find themselves under threat from, um, it seems to be like a cadre of international assassins led by Udo Kier, and you know things are going to not go well when Udo Kier is leading a cadre of international assassins attacking your village, and it seems that these are, they're engaging in blood sport. The villagers have to arm themselves and um, and Battle Rains Down. It's a bizarre hybrid of Western meets war movie, meets 80s exploitation movie along the lines of, say, uh, Assault on Precinct 13. Mm -hmm. The very uh, heavy kind of synth uh, soundtrack also is redolent of, of that era. So it's a weird mishmash of styles, but it, it works. It takes a long time to get where it's going. Like the first act is quite slow and feels almost like we're watching an anthropological film. But then it really pivots into uh, war, mayhem, um, violent Western. It's very thrilling. Lots of excellently executed action sequences, full of personality and color and excitement and a real, almost a, like a, a curio, like a cult film in the making. And this one, 
just back to what I was saying at the beginning of children films that were that showed at the IFI. This one we almost showed at the IFI. We unfortunately were booked, ready to go, ready to go, and we had to close our doors um, as everybody else did. And this is one of the films that got caught in the, the crossfire. So we sadly never actually got to show back row. So that's one of the reasons I'm I'm highlighting it now. Like you say, it is a kind of a, it's a violent film, but it's also quite subtle. I mean, I, when I was watching it, I got the impression that if this had been made in America, it would have actually been a very different film. And possibly, yeah, yeah, maybe so, maybe so. And um, certainly that first, I think it's a long film. It's maybe two hours, 10, 15 minutes. The first hour is almost gentle in its portrait of, of this community, but um, it does wrong foot you. <laughs> it certainly uh, pivots into something else in its last act. Uh, and that is all the more su- surprising and all the more rewarding for that. I think it, it, it doesn't feel like a gimmick. It's not overplaying that hand. It, uh, it, it feels very um, pointedly structured. We're going to stay in South America uh, for your next choice, which is Birds of Passage. Um, this is from the directors of Embrace of the Serpent, Ciro uh, Guerra and Cristina Gallego. Tell us a little bit about Birds of Passage. Yeah, this is just absolutely sensational. I, I love it. Can you tell? Um, and very few people, very few people came to see it, which is kind of extraordinary. Um, I'm sure the ones who did, you know, um, really got something from it. So yeah, as you say, uh, we showed Embrace the Serpent a couple of years back, which was actually a more successful film, just in terms of of audiences. It ran for quite a number of weeks over over the summertime. So this one, Birds of Passage, is the more conventional of the two films, but it didn't connect in the same way. Oddly, it's a, an epic crime saga. Um, redolent of the Godfather in its own way that uh, begins in the 60s. It's um, almost like an origin story, a kind of mythology of the Colombian drug wars. And it starts between two feuding families and escalates throughout, throughout the decades. Uh, one family executes various feuds and vendettas and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and more portentous and operatic is also a word I'd use as it progresses. There's a lot of visual excitement of this film. It's very lavish. It's very dazzling to look at. Uh, it's full of personality. Again, much in common with Backyard. It's full of incredibly well-executed action sequences. And yeah, it just kind of came and went. I thought it was terrific. So maybe people will rediscover it. They're two very different stories, um, Embrace of the Serpent and Birds of the Passage. Is there a distinctive directorial style coming through? Would you know it was the same directors or are they two completely very different films? Very, very different. I mean, you could connect just their visual virtuosity. You know, they're, they're both very flamboyant. They, they really kind of engage with cinema and with the mechanics of cinema. So, uh, but other than that, they're, they're very diverse. They're very different films, which makes it all the more exciting to watch what they're going to do next. One of the, um, one of the best films, I think, that we showed at the IFI last year, one that, that really found an audience was Monos, um, a brilliant story mm. of teenage gorillas looking after American hostage in the Colombian jungle. Um, Kevin, you've picked out Werewolf, um, which is a film from Polish director Adrian Paniak. Tell us a little bit about Werewolf. Werewolf is set in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War when a group of children and teenagers have been liberated from a concentration camp by Russian soldiers and then sent off to fend for themselves. They find a house in the middle of a forest and the owner therein kind of takes them in, offers them sanctuary. But unfortunately, with the advent of soldiers from both sides, they end up on their own again, trapped in this house, surrounded by feral dogs, and again have to fight for their own survival. So again, whether it was conscious or not, another film in which people are mostly trapped in a single location and can't leave. Um, But again, another really interesting film. It, It was something I hadn't really thought about very much, you know, 
what happened in the immediate aftermath of liberation, especially to young people? How did, they, again, how did they go off and reintegrate themselves into normality? Or how do you even define normality after that? So they, they go into the house, their own little class structure forms. There's their own little internecine power struggles. And at the same time, they still have to work together to get through this situation. So it could be argued that there is a horror element to the film. I think that would be maybe to overstate it a bit. It is just a kind of a, a drama about survival, regardless of what methods the director uses. But again, I just thought it was a really interesting film that unfortunately maybe didn't, again, find the audience it deserved. I'm um, staying in the same uh, part of the world, kind of over in Eastern Europe. Uh, Kantemir Balagov, David, sounds like somebody we should all be very jealous of because he's only 30 years of age <laughs> and um, he's got a very accomplished CV already. His third feature, which we're going to talk about now, reached the final nine of the foreign language Oscar, but didn't quite make the final five shortlist. This is Beanpole. Yeah, that's right. And he was only 28 when it uh, played in, uh, in Cannes in Uncertain Regard. And it was talk of Cannes that year that this, this film really should have been in the main competition because it was by far one of the best films in like of any of the strands in Cannes, and again, I, I promised myself and Kevin didn't confer beforehand. But this too is a film set in the immediate aftermath of World War Two, uh, this time in in, uh, in Leningrad. It's a story of friendship between two women, uh, one of which uh, she's she's very tall. It gives her her, her titular nickname of Beanpole, um, and she's looking after the child of her friend who has been fighting on the front. Now, the main character suffers from a crippling post-traumatic stress disorder that uh, forces her to go into almost a, a catatonic state. And that is, uh, the setup essentially is her friend returning from the front lines and quite soon into the narrative, a tragic event occurs. Um, to say too much about it would be, uh, constitute a major plot spoiler. But it's an incredibly assured film from such a young director who manages to recreate the the time and the place of Leningrad in the immediate aftermath of a cataclysmic siege with great economy. He elicits beautiful performances from the, the trio of leads. It's it's quite a challenging watch sometimes. It's, it's, it's quite a tough subject. But again, back to my refrain, it's a film that played for, I think, maybe one week at the IFI and at funny times because it was right in the middle of, in the lead up to Christmas. So there was very little we could do with it. And again, maybe it was because it was released at that particular time of the year. People weren't willing to engage with it, but it was certainly one of the best films of last year. And as I said, it was one of the best films of Cannes last year. So an extraordinary talent, uh, three films under his belt at the age of 30 with this, which is, um, again, it was produced by Alexander Wodnianski, who has worked many, many times with Andrzej Zyagensev. So that'll give you kind of, who's you know, made Loveless and um, all these incredible films. That'll give you an indication of uh, the quality um, underpinning this film. So yeah, I do hope people rediscover this less than cheerful film in, uh, in this current situation. Just to wrap up then, Kevin, we're going to stay in Russia uh, for your final pick, which is a, a very different beast altogether. Um, a film that screened as part of the IFI Harathon Festival last October, Why Don't You Just Die? Yeah, I'm picking this as the one I missed myself um, that I'm looking forward to catching up on. It's been released now on streaming platforms, but it went down a treat at Harathon. The reviews are great and it just sounds like a little bit of a pleasure at the moment. We were looking at the trailer there um, just before we kicked off here and it's, it has a very unique look to it. It's kind of um, almost pop arty with very kind of strong primary colours, very, very kind of striking. No doubt. And again, the, the humour that's in it, I mean, it, it's a strange premise. Uh, uh, a young man goes around to his girlfriend's place to meet, meet the family 
uh, well, not he's already met the family, but the girlfriend has told him all these stories about how abusive the father is and so on. And so he goes around with the plan of killing him. But unfortunately, the guy proves practically indestructible. So it just gets more and more kind of grand guinol, if that's the correct pronunciation. And it just gets more and more absurd by all accounts. But um, it keeps the humor as well as the kind of, you know, to the absurd humor side of it as well. So it, it just sounds like something, you know, as we are just talking about little gems we missed. Like I said, we showed it at Horathon. Unfortunately, as often happens during festivals, we don't often get the chance to go and see some of the things we haven't already seen. It got denied a cinema release because of what's going on at the moment. So mm. at some point, I'm going to try and catch up with myself. Hey, likewise, I'm, I missed it at Horathon. So um, I'll take that recommendation. I haven't seen it either. So there we have some fantastic recommendations to tide you over while you stay safe at home. A huge thanks to David and Kevin for joining us on the show. Birds of Passage and Support the Girls are available to stream from Netflix. Baccarat and Beanpole are available to rent from Mubi. The Nightingale is available to rent from Amazon Prime with Ayanara, Amazing Jonathan Documentary, Werewolf and Why Don't You Just Die all available from iTunes. Thanks for listening and join us next time on the iFi Podcast. The iFi Podcast is produced by the Irish Film Institute. The Irish Film Institute is principally funded by the Arts Council. The IFI is a charity. For more information on how to support its work, visit ifi.ie forward slash support.